So you want a partner and to create a life with someone, but why are you attracting the wrong kind of people? And what is that about? Well, I'm Jacqueline. And I'm Mary. And we are two therapists that believe attachment is the root of everything. Truly everything. And we are here to help you transform your relationships and dating life. So today we're excited to introduce a guest. Her name is Theodora Blanchfield. She is a therapist and she has been writing about mental health since 2011, long before it was cool to do so. She vulnerably shares her own struggles with anxiety and depression to help readers feel less alone. She's received her master's degree in clinical psychology and works as a therapist using her experiences to help others. She's been published on various sites like Women's Health, Bustle, Healthline, and more, quoted in sites including the New York Times, Shape, and Marie Claire. Her background also includes writing about fitness and running. So today our podcast is about adoption and attachment. So we wanted to interview somebody who would, and just trying to tickle her brain about what that experience is like for her and how that works with her own attachment style. So hi, Theodora. So nice to meet you. Good to see you again. Hi, thank you so much for having me. So we wanted to start with, you know, I'm curious around, I know that you real you kind of understood what the word adoption meant. It was something that your parents never hid from you in any way, but it was right around the age of eight where you started to grasp the concept of what that meant. And I'm curious, like at that point in your life, like one of the things I love about your writing is how candid you are around like the good and the bad, if you will, like how it's truly an all-encompassing experience, whether it's about adoption or something else. So that these things are really nuanced, right? And the more that we own them and can see the whole picture, our relationship to them changes. So I'm curious, starting back at the beginning, what was kind of your like experience or perception around what what that meant to you? Yeah, that's a really interesting question because so much of the adoption conversation online, adoption discourse in general is so black and white, is so either it's the best thing in the world or this is like human trafficking. And, you know, like anything, it's somewhere in between. And I feel like I, you know, from my parents and, you know, they were doing the best they could with what they had, et cetera. You know, but they, like many other adoptive parents, like kind of did present me with the narrative of like, this is like, you know, the best thing ever. My name literally means a gift from God. Mm -hmm. (laughs) You can see what my parents thought about adoption. (laughs) You know, so that was, you know, what I was getting from them. And so kind of from an early age, I you know, was told that adoption kind of was the best thing ever and that I should feel so grateful. And I largely did and do. And I think, you know, as I started getting a little older and like my friends, like my friends' moms would, you know, give birth to younger siblings, it started making me realize that I was a little different, you know, that my mom, hadn't given birth to me or that as people started noticing traits that they had in common with their parents, you know, I noticed that that didn't necessarily apply to me, that 
you know, that there were some things that just were different about me. So I think I probably first started, I guess, really realizing what it meant in how it made me different from other people. Yeah, And it made you different from other people. Did that feel good or bad to you? Like, was was it like, oh, there might be something wrong with me in some way? Or like, why is it? Or, oh, then just noticing that as a different experience. I think mostly noticing it as a different experience. Um, as as you're saying that, I feel like I vaguely remember being made fun of. I guess I'm glad I don't remember the specifics, but I do vaguely remember being made fun of a little bit, which kids are so mean. Kids are so mean. And that's really a sign it makes me think of when children are expressing in that way, what kind of messaging are they getting at home? You know, one of the things that I'm thinking of is around the experience of, you know, when we think like usually it's not really that much processing, right? Like this is this thing that we're telling you and we're not, you know, hiding from you in any way, but also this is the way it is and that was the thing and that's that, right? Like, and, and, and as far as how you're navigating it through the world. And I'm just thinking about not just, you know, we have, a impacts if we're looking at the attachment system from what was given to you from bio parents, along with the experience of having that separation, along with one of the things we don't talk about enough that does affect our attachment style is the experiences or are the experiences that we grow up with, like how the world around us, our environment very much also plays into how our nervous system learns to regulate, like what kind of messages play in as far as danger or safety, you know? I'm curious of how your parents, your adopted parents, how they were around mirroring your experience, like kind of validating that emotional experience. Like, like where would you say that kind of lied from the attachment? Yeah. I know you know a little bit about. Yeah, you know, honestly, not great. And I don't think, I, I don't think I really would have even been able to put that to words if my mom were still alive, which I think also says a lot. You know, I think that, yeah, I mean, my parents were, you know, amazing in a million ways, but not not so much with the emotional validation and like certainly not at all around adoption. You know, I think anytime I kind of express, you know, yeah, as I was young, I think like, the being different being like the biggest thing they were like no but like you look like us like I I did but I still was theirs and biologically and you know they said we think of you like as if you were our biological kid like yes and I appreciate that and you know that's invalidating the fact that I wasn't Yeah, I think about, you know, like, you know, some, I often try to express to people that, like you said, parents are trying to do the best they can, but there are like subtle ways that we end up in that kind of more avoidant or dismissive attachment style, which really stems from like your parents at that moment were feeling this own, their own dysregulation, right? So the way to handle is just let's make everything comfortable. You look just like us. We'll find a way, which is, you know, subconsciously dismissing your experience, right? And so now we know that the way forward to get that security is actually to mirror back, oh, you're feeling a little different, but this is true. That part's large. There are some ways we connect and there is some of your journey that we're going to learn to navigate together 
in a way that neither of us had done before, right? That creates safety because security is based on that that comfort in, I've got your back, even in the unknown. We're going to figure it out together. I'm not going to just leave you high and dry, right? And the insecure part of us says, oh, I'll better be an island to deal with it if I'm running avoidant, or I must latch so strongly onto others in order to feel that sense of safety because my body is in a safe place or I'm not a safe place. The other things matter more than myself or the disorganized, of course, which is, yeah. 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 I, um, yeah, I think I probably tend to one more disorganized because, and I only really truly have found the words for it literally this weekend as I was working on a piece that emotionally my parents either totally dismissed what I was feeling or completely coddled me. There were zero in-betweens. And also, I, I feel like bringing up my parents' ethnic backgrounds is important because I feel like they both very stereotypically fell into their different ethnicities. My mom was Sicilian. My mom was a 5'3 Sicilian little powerhouse in northern New Jersey. And my dad was Irish and a Vietnam vet. And I feel like those two things kind of tell you everything you need to know about how they operated emotionally. They both very much fell into all of those stereotypes. I can really? imagine there were a lot but of the Italian emotions. being like really, really reactive and the Irish being like, no, it's fine. It's fine. And just, you know, numbing their pain. <laughs> yeah. I was just thinking about how, when you first came on, you were talking about that black and white thinking around it. Like it's not black and white. I read one of the articles that you read was about growing up hashtag blessed, right? Doesn't erase the trauma of being removed from your birth mother. And you know, that the, and the other end of the pendulum swinging around your parents, like basically insisting you were so, you're so wanted. We wanted you, we wanted you. And you being trapped in the middle of all of that and just having your own felt sense of what that experience was and not feeling like just like what Jacqueline was saying was like really meeting you and validating you in terms of like, yeah, let's talk about what it's like to be adopted. So I'm just curious that now you're doing a lot of writing around it. And how do you want to use that platform to help others with their own experiences of adoption? Yeah, I mean, I think I... I had to go through like a lot of pain before I was able to, you know, kind of get to what I realized in a lot of feeling unseen. And then, but you know, it took a lot of therapy and it took going to grad school to become a therapist before I even started finding some of the words. So, you know, I, I think like my, my hopes are to save people some of the anguish that I went through and to help them just feel a little more seen and like also to really appreciate the nuance because like I said like I you know so much of the adoption discourse is just so black and white you know really even leading you know I'm thinking about while that intergenerational intergenerational piece is so strong there's like the old argument like nature versus nurture, right? And that piece of, if you look at like, like you said, the discourse around it, like how just how much that's going to play into insecure attachment, right? Because 
you know, in our brains, when we're in a state of rigidity, that black and white thinking, we are in a state of not allowing in new information, right? Like, so whatever that track of survival is, is going to be the one that's running the show when we're in some state of rigidity, whether that's avoidance or anxiety or the mixed, like both, you know, combating, right, for dueling needs. What what attachment style do you identify with now? Now. Um, I mean, let's say... Probably mostly avoidant romantically and definitely anxious in platonic relationships and like in friendships. But yeah, romantically, I am 40 years old and I've never been in a relationship for more than like six months. You know, up until the past few years, I left every relationship first before I could be left. Like part of like my personal work the past couple of years has been to be okay being left and I have been left and I've been okay how did you handle it uh when you were left like what was the kind of thought process around that I'm curious yeah you know some of us when we leave we romanticize or idealize the partners or we feel so much distress we do everything to avoid by dating other people immediately or doing distracting behaviors like drinking away the pain or any, you know, it could be exercising yeah. just distract, right? And that's usually, you know, of the trifecta of how to create that internal sense of safety and regulation. The one that most of us go to is like the distracting piece versus the pieces of connection with others around just kind of like mirroring and understanding what's happening, processing, as well as that connection with self and even what it feels like to feel the pain, right? Building that capacity uh, and tolerance for it is what creates that internal sense of safety. So I'm wondering, like, how did you navigate that if you were the one always being left, uh, sorry, yeah. always being the leaving, and then to be left? I'm imagining that was probably really distressing, but the avoidance side of us can often check out and say, I'm fine, right? And like lean into that space of being alone, right? Like they, they can shine in that way. So what was yeah, that? So it's so it's interesting. There's like two uh, relationships in particular that I'm thinking of. One was he dumped me six weeks after my mom died, which was, you know, fun timing, fun timing. However, we both ran a half marathon a couple of weeks later and then I passed him. So he said, oh, I don't think I really have the capacity to date right now. And then when I passed him in the race, I was like, oh, I guess you don't have the capacity to train either. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Yes, also sarcasm is clearly one of the nerves. This man had a lot of limitations. Yeah, Yeah. he did. Yeah. But yeah, I mean, with that one, I absolutely. Speaking of having a hard time, having the capacity of not being able to sit with discomfort, it sounds like this person did not have that capacity to sit in discomfort. No, he did not. Uh, But yeah, I mean, at the time for me, there was a lot of, numbing for sure and I mean it was also just a whole mess of emotions having just lost my mom too and giving yeah. up my dog two months before that 2017 was so much fun wow. I got laid off six weeks after the breakup too 2017 was great but this last relationship you know I realized that we weren't a good match and 
that I was sure. proud of myself and grateful for what I learned in that relationship, like really and truly. I was just going to say, is there anything that you notice just about yourself around being adopted that affects the types of people that you choose to be in relationships with? That's interesting. Or do you really more like people that are your adopted parents that you seek out, like more mirroring those kind of traits? These are both great questions that I've never thought of. If anything, I actually would say that I have typically sought out guys that felt for like a lack of better word safe to me as in and I feel like I sound like an asshole saying this but like where I felt like I was like dating down it's easy to leave people when you're dating down yeah yeah and what about when you said you were dating down what about for these last two two people that were more they left you what was what was that yeah I think in the dating down it also was kind of looking for someone that I've that I I guess I could try and feel secure that they were absolutely into me and these last two guys you know I don't think I necessarily went into it with kind of that thought pattern I think I just kind of went into these last two relationships a little bit more open-minded. And so on, you know, the back end of that now, I'm curious if, you know, when you mentioned the dating down at the time, did you recognize it as that? Or was it really only after the fact that you were able to see that? Another relationship in particular that like I can see in my head that I knew for sure was dating down, at least absolutely physically because I also had almost zero physical attraction to him. And obviously, you know, can't really sustain a relationship with zero physical attraction. So that one I definitely noticed at the time. I think the other ones, it was a little bit more in retrospect. Hmm. It's interesting to note the difference sometimes, like right when we're in it, for those of you out there who are running a little more avoidant or identify with Theodora's story, um, that we don't always see these things in the moment, right? What we're looking for is like patterns, right? Like where are those sticky points that we notice? Oh, I'm I'm doing this again. And if relationships are an area that I struggle or in particular ways, like where are those consistent patterns? Um, curious from, you know, the lens of like what you learned in, you know, like what sounds like grad school played a big part in the awakening of really understanding the nuance of how adoption has affected you did that coincide with a trajectory around like when your kind of growth in relationships started, where you started to kind of do new patterns or did that come afterwards, like further afterwards? Uh, no, it, it mostly coincided with grad school. I also before grad school was completely fine and comfortable and more comfortable with physical intimacy than emotional intimacy. A lot of one night stands. My 20s and 30s were fun, <laughs> but not as much emotional intimacy. You know, getting into my late 30s and turning 40 and realizing that, no, like I, I want a longer term relationship and that I need to start looking for 
different things in a partner and thinking about different things when I date. Yeah. I think to, you know, like to be avoidant, right? One of the qualities of avoiding attachment is like there is more weight on physical intimacy and mistaking that for the whole picture of intimacy, right? And that avoidant side of us can be really hard to clock, right? Because we don't necessarily feel in distress. But what I find so powerful about your story is that piece of awareness, what you mentioned, like once you had a really nuanced sense of, oh, this is how things are impacting me, boom, then the story is allowed to shift, right? It's like, oh, I see those behaviors were actually part of what was holding me back in a way that maybe you're holding yourself back in a way that you actually no longer wanted. What kinds of things did you do that you thought you found like work to like catalyze that growth? I think that it was just trying to go out on dates and be myself, which sounds, I say to clients like simple, but not easy. You know, I think like before that I was trying to be like, the cool girl and be super easy breezy when I am as easy breezy as the subway in August. I am not easy breezy, but I could make myself, or at least I thought I could make myself seem like the kind of woman that I thought that guy could be into. And so what kind of woman are you, are you now? What kind of woman are you working towards now? It's a great question. I think just letting myself be weird and also realizing that I'm not actually that weird either. <laughs> um, but yeah, just letting myself be myself. And if a guy is not into that, then too bad. And I think just genuinely meaning that. I think I probably could have said those words five years ago, but I meant them. How did you... Uh... What did you find work that allows you to come to that kind of sense of inner self-acceptance? Yeah. Oh, good question. I mean, I think. I think. First kind of. Testing that out with friends. First kind of realizing how it felt when I was with friends that I felt. I could be more genuine with and developing deeper friendships and seeing how those felt versus the more surface level or the friends that like I felt like I had to be a certain person around. And I think that really helps me as I attempt romantic relationships. And so I'm curious because when you're talking about that you're able to be more authentic, more yourself around your friends. I'm just wondering, going back into your childhood situation, did you feel like you could be yourself around your parents? Oh, oh, what a question. I felt like I could be myself when it was the self that they approved of. But, and they approved of most of what I did, but there were definitely, yeah, I mean, definitely parts of myself that I felt like I had to hide and for fear of just them not recognizing my emotions and for like yeah for the fear of course of like rejection and abandonment 
That's such a good, uh, you know, the way that you were able to articulate that I could be myself at times when that self-aligned with what they wanted approved of. And when I think about like a consistent thing I see in people who run more avoidant is there is that that hiding, right? Like the avoidance is like, there is that way that it's like, well, again, I better be an island. So I'm going to do this step over here. Like there is that disconnect from people who are close to us, right? And the work that you did around it is actually like, it's literally out of the handbook of Mary and just how to work with that avoidance side, which is leaning into building trust with others, right? And trying that out with friends or people you trust and little doses to build that sense of security that another's going to be there for me, right? And that even, you know, continuing to go out on dates and expressing in those ways, that that is the practice for the avoidance side of us. And even I'll argue the anxious side of us, right? Because the anxious side of us can be like, you know, the people pleaser, like I just, and people pleasing can be, I just with, you know, I restrain or refrain from my opinion. I will hold it because I know that that might create some conflict between us in some way, or I sense that it will provoke some kind of disconnect. And because that side's so threatening, we just say nothing, right? But practicing that skill set in doses, even when you do get rejected, you learn bit by bit, how can I be there for myself? As well as it's not so bad to let in others, right? The world doesn't collapse in essence. Exactly. Yeah. When I even noticed and I only really kind of fully realized this right before we got on and I was just kind of thinking through some of the things we're going to be talking about that like this attachment and parental approval stuff for fear of rejection and abandonment from them like that it affected dating too because I was afraid to date someone that my parents didn't approve of for yeah for fear of disagreement and jumping down a rabbit hole to abandonment. And I even love how you were talking about, yeah, that you muted parts of yourself. You knew what parts would be accepted. And just even look, going forward into your dating life and being avoidant, right? You knew how to contort yourself for these people that you dated. Like, I know how to be the cool girl. I know that the cool girl is accepted. I know that guys want to date the cool girl. You want the cool girl? I'm the cool girl. Yeah. And I think that also like extended to like, the physical intimacy too of, oh, like the cool girl sleeps around. Okay. Yeah. And then you don't actually have to develop any, again, like what you were saying, I don't have to develop any emotional intimacy. I can just hop from one, one bed to the next. Right. (laughs) And, and that feels okay to me. That feels okay to me. And I do, you know, I do love how you started as Jacqueline was saying, and just as you were saying, once I started to go to grad school and I'm understanding, so exploring these deeper, deeper layers of what that is like for me to be somebody who's adopted and what that means to be in a relationship with someone else and that you wanted to show up as a more genuine you, as opposed to this other part, which works, but it's not sustainable. Yeah. And another, another part of that too was before grad school, I moved to LA like six months before grad school. So it also basically feels like New York me and LA me, but New York me and pre-grad school me drank a lot 
probably incredibly unsurprising after everything else I've just said. <laughs> and that obviously, I think, enabled that behavior. It all kind of probably went hand in hand. So also part of this trying to be my, myself was also trying to be myself without the alcohol as a crutch, which felt twice as hard. Completely right. It's a, it's a way we can regulate, like, right. Like it's yeah. wait inside and social it, lubrication. Yeah. Well, digging beneath, like, what am I doing behind this avoidance? I imagine would lead you to better able to decipher of like, you know, I, I'm, I'm curious on your standpoint around rules around, you know, sleeping with somebody and like where that lies for you now based on where you were, like, how do you decipher between like, you know, is this coming from a place that's like looking for validation or this feels like the right time to do this? Like, how do you navigate that now? Yeah. yeah I mean, I honestly like still feel like I still have difficulty with that. So if anything now, I feel like I try to just really slow that down because I know my tendency would absolutely each a rush into it otherwise so it's like you know slow, slow, slow and steady when we're not used to feeling our feelings right can give us that time so we don't have the relapse of oh wait this was actually what i was feeling in the moment because right. i'm aware of it and again you know yeah. anxiety also is covering up like the more authentic emotion right like it's leading by a survival response just like the avoidance side of us right but that numbness because it leads the show i'm fine i'm fine and then we realize oh actually i wasn't so that moment, like I was that <laughs> sense of distress in some way. Right. I'm also curious. Right. And it can be, and like sometimes, like we can confuse like the anxiety with just like adrenaline. Mm -hmm. Totally. It's, it's exciting. It's something, you, you know, and again, it takes time. Like I always say, security is know that you, you know thyself. I know the difference between these two. Or I take my time to figure out what that is when I don't know. Right. Like we only know through going through the, by going through the experience of, you know, what, how we perceive it or our reaction is to it and if it works for us or not. You mentioned that your, your adopted mother had passed. And I'm just thinking about the layers around like where that must play into, like, there's like, you know, I truly believe that the healings and the grieving to me, right. When we consciously grieve and are able to experience those emotions underneath like the survival response, like just really building that capacity to be with ourselves. And I'm thinking about the layers around a grief that is just inherent in somebody who's adopted, right? Because there is that, that separation, right? That's happened, bottom line, no matter what, there is a physical separation that happens. So we can't get away from that along with then on top of it, navigating that relationship with not just your adoptive parents, but like how you then perceive what that relationship is with your bio parents and, and whether you were able to connect with them or not, like just what that looks like. I'm curious about like what that kind of brought up for you. I just fell apart after I lost my mom. Like I said, there was also a lot of other stuff that happened at the time. And I also, like I said, was also drinking a lot to numb out and that, didn't help anything but I for a while was questioning like why it was so hard why I was so depressed and part of that is also like just being hard on myself and having never gone through that kind of deep grief ever before 
my mom was the first person I was close to that I'd lost. I'd lost grandparents, but I wasn't super, super close to them. And my grandparents passed away at ages that appropriate is not the right word, but it's all the word I can think of right now that felt more appropriate. My mom was 72, which is not young, but her mom lived until she was 95. So it felt much earlier than I expected it. So I think I was feeling just, I don't know, it felt to me like maybe a disproportionate amount of grief. And I just couldn't figure out why it was so much harder for me. And I was like, just really digging for answers, of course, everywhere outside of myself. And it took a while before I started to really realize that it was also because I was adopted and that this was the second time in my life that I had lost mother and I was 35 and I'd already lost two mothers. And obviously had never been given the space growing up to, to grieve the, that, that loss at birth or to even recognize it. So I think I kind of had to come to terms with both of those things kind of at the same time. And oh, that was not easy. Yeah, that's a lot. And I'm just thinking about how, you know, in order to even go into and process that grief in a safe way, we really have to have some kind of foundation of safety set up beforehand. And it sounds like you had set those things up, right? Like you weren't, well, at that point you were drinking, but you were, you were getting the grad school during, like you were on a journey yeah. of how, you know, like, how am I going to help myself in some way? You know, one of the things that can happen, right? Like our attachment, our attachment system goes from primary caregiver to then romantic partner as adults, right? Because we no longer need our primary caregivers in that same way. So then th that's why, while we feel an attachment to everything we care about, it can be strongest in romantic relationships. And, you know, that's why hence the, you know, the distress when, right, we feel the disconnection or threat of disconnection. And I'm what it just makes so much sense to me, right? Like if you're dating underneath yourself, like in a way, it's like, well, you never have to feel that sense of disconnection because you were never connected. So then the threat is never right. It's never there. And that would make sense again. Like I don't, I don't want to touch that abandonment, abandonment, abandonment wound. And when we experience loss, whether it's a breakup or loss of a loved one, you know, both both are losses. They look a little different, right? Because we can still talk to the person we broke up with in the material form. So it is a little different, but they really bring up that, that wounding, those attachment ruptures, right? And, and if we're able to tend to that part, then we get the gifts. That's like the silver lining of dealing with the grieving part of ourselves. Yeah. And as you said, I also kind of was thinking I, in my twenties, had a few friend breakups that affected me incredibly deeply. And one of like my mini soapboxes that as a society, I think we don't give enough space to talking about how devastating friend breakups can be. And so I, that, that was another kind of loss that I never felt like I could properly express or process. And those, those losses kind of crushed me. So 
those, I think I use those as an excuse to retreat further into myself. And if this friend breakup could devastate me so much, like, oh, good God, I don't want to get into a romantic relationship. Just even looking back at that, when you look at those friend breakups now, having so much more wisdom and experience, do they make sense to you? Like, what what would you say now to yourself about those friend breakups? Maybe some people have their the experience of like dating the guys who aren't good for them or who don't appreciate them or treat them as well. I think that maybe hopefully I skipped that and <laughs> had that uh, in some pretty rough friendships. I know one thing you've mentioned in some of your writing is how suicide rates and depression rates are higher amongst adoptees. And I was wondering if you could speak a little more to that. Yeah, I mean, I think that so much of that like probably lies in like the disenfranchised grief of it all. Uh, but there's this grief that you enter enter the world with and the world is telling you that you're so lucky that you have this trauma happened so I think that there's that and then I think that there's the the like the epigenetic the intergenerational stuff of probably whatever trauma happened in your biological parents lives and then leading to the relinquishment I think that like all of those things really just kind of set up a perfect storm for depression, for mental illness, and just not feeling seen and not feeling understood. Like I mentioned earlier, I am lucky. I don't know if those are the right words, but I look like my my adoptive parents. Like in fact, some people have seen pictures of both sets of parents think I look more like my adoptive parents. But um, so at least I didn't have to deal with like like a racial factor of growing up in a home where I look completely different from my parents and are completely different race from my parents or like growing up in a town where nobody looks like me. You know, I think that that is also like a huge layer to it for a lot of adoptees. And I think that like when you're talking about the attachment and the epigenetics. And I think what we also kind of forget to mention is that what happens in utero. So, you know, your biological mom was at a phase in her life where she wasn't able to take care of you in a way that I can imagine she would probably want to take care of her child. And so just even knowing that when you see pregnant women see like the level of connection or the level of the connection that their partner has right in the way that they like cradle the belly or talk to the baby and and all of that and I don't know what your bio mom did with you when you were in her belly but I'm I'm just even imagining there can there is that sense of like I know I'm giving up this baby and that in of itself is so hard that I don't even want to allow myself to have a deeper connection than I already have in terms of the biological aspect of it. Yeah, yeah. And she uh, had an abortion scheduled that actually my birth father talked her out of. I was conceived in Sweden. She was studying abroad and she met my birth father. And so, you know, and then she came back to the U.S. by herself 
and made this decision. And yeah, like, like you said, Mary, like, I think that for her own self-preservation, I would imagine that you have to disconnect a little bit, certainly a little bit more than you would if it, this were your child that you were going to keep and bring into the world and raise and 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 even just the experience of like you know being held after you're born and then the breastfeeding right and the oxytocin and all of that i mean this is all part of like what we're talking about like the mirror neurons and the neurochemicals and so i always think that this brain science stuff is so fascinating like yeah what we have more of what we have less of less of what gets pruned, what grows. And so it's just so interesting to me in terms of how you were saying, like with romantic partners being more avoidant. And then that when people like, I know that I run avoidant. And so there's a lot of work that has to be done to get to that place of earned secure attachment, right? Because we do have to work with the way that our brains have been developed over the years and work with that neuroplasticity to start to create those new roads. Yeah. And I think, yeah, absolutely. And it wasn't until I went to grad school and I started learning all of that stuff that I could really appreciate that and appreciate that, no, that there wasn't anything wrong with me, that there were certain circumstances in my life that made me the way I am and I just have to figure out how to navigate them yeah I love that it's like actually secure attachment is not having no limitations it's actually understanding that we have choice within those limitations so just like you know you were given a certain set of characteristics and I have mine it's more like how am I choosing to use these and how are you choosing to use yours you know and you know I'm thinking back to, you know, this, what you had said in regards to depression and suicide and suicidal thoughts. And I, you know, think of those both in terms of when we're having that, like I consider depression almost a survival response, right? And suicidal thoughts in a way are too, it's, they're both signs that the body is really overwhelmed, right? Like there's too much happening and we need to ease off the gas in some way because there, there's too much. It's uh, stop, right? That's <laughs> the brain is saying stop in some way. And, you know, just as you were describing like all the nuances around all these different pieces to process, it's like you hear that it is a lot. That is overwhelming. Um, of course, the brain says I need to stop because we can't deal with that all at once, right? So it's again, like, how are we doing this in little doses that the side of us that runs avoidant or anxious? it's not wrong that we have survival responses. It's more, are we just making sure we're connecting at the same time, even when we act on those, right? Because in some situations, they would serve us in some ways. If you were to feel all that in a tri- as a child, that might have been too much for you. Like, this isn't necessarily a bad thing, but it's just like, how do I navigate through with this current set of circumstances? But- yeah, yeah. And I wrote an article this weekend, actually, um, about suicide and about like my experience with suicide and I talked a lot about how suicidal ideation is like a coping mechanism in and of itself yeah exactly what you just said of yeah sometimes it can be like big air quote easier to have those thoughts than to feel what's underneath them there's I don't know if you guys are familiar with Gabby Bernstein but they're 
is a card from one of her card decks that I love. And it says, true healing occurs when I give myself permission to feel what lies beneath the triggers. Or I might have like misquoted it a little bit, but that's the the gist of it. And yeah, you know, I mean, like I, in this article I wrote, like, you know, I would get triggered by a song that reminded me of my mom or I would get triggered by like someone I was jealous of professionally. And it was easier to be triggered than to, and to respond to those triggers than to think, oh, I'm sad because my mom died. I am embarrassed because my career is not where I want it to be. Mm. Yeah, I love that. And I, and it's, and you're really allowing yourself to build that muscle to hold space for yourself when just like what I was hearing when you were growing up, it's like the adoption story is, well, we love you and we wanted you and and it's all positive, positive, positive. And then there are also all of these feelings underneath it that for you that don't feel so great. And there was no space for you to process those, right? So the message is, let's just stick with the positive stuff. And so when you're able to hold space for yourself in these triggers, like the song or or the career, and I'm jealous of this person, or I'm mad about this thing, to really understand like what those feelings are underneath and that now you are able to be there for you, right? When before you really needed your parents to like help you process this. And so that's just such a beautiful arc of healing that, that I'm hearing. Thank you. Yeah. And I, I don't think I would have been able to process this adoption stuff while my mom was still here. It's I mean, just giving, I'm imagining there was just probably more space perhaps was, you know, what do you think was preventing you from dealing with more of it when she was alive? Yeah, the more space and just that more of that ability to be myself. Yeah, I'm almost imagining like, right, like ability to see like bigger picture. Yeah. Well, right. Because even like, you know, one of the things we have to do through loss, right, is like understand life kind of in a new way, right? So that can give us that space to say, oh, where was like, I, I where where was I thinking in these kind of like smaller terms that now I can expand out to see more, even if the more is, you know, what we don't know, right? But that even I hear that in like being yourself, like the expansiveness. I don't know how this will turn out for me if I act in this way, right? Like that's what we're doing. Yeah. When we date, we don't know if somebody is going to approve of us, quote unquote, or disapprove of us. And so how do you imagine this expansiveness influencing the way that you are going to move forward with dating and relationships? What a great question. <laughs> that is that Now that clearly... you're not sleeping around. <laughs> um, clearly still a work in progress. My adoptive dad is not doing so well right now. So it's also difficult just for me to find any of that space. Um, so... Yeah, so just taking it very, very slowly. 
I love that because what I hear in that is, right, then we don't get the overwhelm when we do it in just tiny pieces, especially for that side of us who runs avoidant. The work is in the baby steps. We cannot overwhelm the system. Otherwise, we experience like the snapback, right? And there's, you know, one of the essentials around. Or I'm just totally avoiding dating altogether. But, you know, look at this little, I mean, that sounds like a lot of stress, right? Yeah. Limitations in the moment, right? Of like, why, right? Like I'm thinking back to that guy who was like, basically, he couldn't handle things like understanding your limitations at this moment. Or this doesn't necessarily seem like an avoidant thing. It seems more like you're, you're clear on what your limits are. Yeah. I mean, what's your sense of yourself between noticing the difference of being avoidant or avoiding situations and taking care of yourself. Yeah, no, I'm I'm joking about that because yeah, no, it is absolutely taking care of myself because I know that I do not have any extra emotional space right now. So <laughs> Yeah, and I think, you know, when I think to, you know, the avoidant side of us as we learn to feel, again, like Feelings can be so overwhelming, right? So like watching for when the shutdown occurs, when we're wanting to check out, when depression flares or whatever our coping, the survival strategies are, like when they're up is the sign like, okay, we're in the rigidity. How can we go into the feeling, but do it in a way that's creating a sense of safety? You know, and that's what I hear of in a lot of your story, like all these different things you've done to create safety in your life. What would you say, like if you could pick out like one or three or things that really work for you now as far as like helping you thrive and navigating your journey, what would they be? Yeah, I am staring out at the ocean as I answer this question. So I will say one, the ocean and the beach and nature and being outside, you know, moving to LA from New York would obviously a huge change and At the time, I think some people thought I was running away from something, but I really knew I was running to something. LA just felt safer to me. And I don't know, it just felt, it felt right to me. So nature, I would say, is a big one. And I would say movement is and has always been a huge one for me. I'm a runner. As you know, Jacqueline, I'm learning how to surf now. So even just when things are feeling heavy, as they have been lately with things going on with my dad, like just even knowing that just getting out and walking and walking with my dog, just moving my energy, literally moving my energy around um, makes a big difference. And then I think probably the last thing is just having the courage to be honest with people in my life about how I'm feeling about what's going on. I I love love that. that. It's just thinking like, and for the avoidant piece, what is it? And you just said it, but (laughs) that ability to just continue to, you know, reach out and be in that connection versus like avoidant would be island, isolate, lone wolf, you know, and so to keep that muscle like flexed and strong. And also somatically, right? Nature and movement are two, yeah. you know, very important pieces to tap into, especially if you're working somatically, that it can be so healing. And movement and nature also provide such an important connection, both 
to yourself and also outside of yourself. We do live in an existence that is like beyond our physical bodies, right? And just to be able to connect to that is so important. Yeah. And maybe, maybe to add four, three and a half, then I would say psychedelics, psychedelics and ketamine. I started like a psychedelic journey about four years ago. And I also do ketamine therapy with clients now. And I think that that really helps me both connect more with myself and, you know, with the universe. Yeah, that's not a half. That gets its own number. So that's that's <laughs> well, you a said three, so I was just well. trying yeah. to <laughs> you get in you there. Know, what I hear in what you said, and I think it's really important, you know, for those of you out there who go more avoidant, is those last two that you mentioned, Theodora, I think are crucial because you know, if we run away, we can use nature to escape. We can use exercise to escape. But when we couple that with having the courage, like you said, to be yourself and tell your friends what's going on. And when you mentioned like outside the box, right, outside the box, psychedelic therapy, therapy, keyword in this versus just experience, because we're just having experiences yeah. that, that can like feed the avoidance. I can handle it on my own. But the integration with therapy brings back into that connective piece. So I just, I wanted to throw that out there for those of you who are listening who are running avoidant and who are, thinking, <laughs> who are running avoidant and think that doing mushrooms Ooh, every weekend is going to, to I, I work valleys with fine in nature. Right, yeah. Oh my God. <laughs> Still another part to that. Yeah, it's, it's, it's about sharing that experience with somebody who has a lot of knowledge and wisdom to be guided in that because not only are you connecting to yourself and something beyond yourself, but you're also connecting to the person who is in the space with you right. and witnessing you in, in that. Very powerful. I love those four. I subscribe to all of them. So <laughs> us avoidance have to stick together. <laughs> well, I love them too. <laughs> They run a little anxious, so I need that, you know, even though that's my job to handle. Uh, <laughs> I need to be a part of it. I, I do. I do. You know, I love your writing so much and the the conversations that you're having within your work around like, right, the conversations of adoption and grief. And um, I'm just wondering, like, where can people find you if they want to work with you or learn more about you? Yeah, my websites are therapywiththeodora.com. That one's probably a little easier to spell than my whole name. Theodora we'll have, them in, we'll have it in the we'll have it yeah. in the show notes too. And I am on Instagram as Theodorable. That's adorable. Um, thank you. It's a it's a childhood nickname. And when I joined Instagram in 2011, I didn't realize it was going to be what it is now. And I, <laughs> it is what it is now. But now it's me. <laughs> thank you so much for being with us. We appreciate you. Yeah. Thank you so much for having me. Yeah. Thank you for being so open and vulnerable in this space. And thank you for all the writings that you do. And a lot of uh, Theodora's writings are on verywellmind.com and you can search her name and she has lots of great articles, not only about adoption, but of a lot of other good topics like depression, anxiety, psychedelic medicine, and the personal experience that you 
integrate in your writings, I think just make your writings even that much more powerful and relatable. So thank you for that as well. Thank you so much. So you can find me at Mary B Therapy on all the socials. And I'm at Jacqueline Bush Wellness on TikTok and Instagram. And check out our website at lovesexandattachment.com. And thanks for listening.